You are listening to The Fox, a podcast novel written and read by Arlene Radaski. Chapter 11. Ain. April 2005. George's thick white eyebrows uplifted in recognition when he saw Mark waving. He waved back, and then his hand fell to his balding head as if to straighten remembered hair. He wore his uniform of khaki, multi-pocketed pants, and a tan, long-sleeved shirt. Good, he said. I was hoping both of you would be here. He leaned his tall, work-stooped frame just enough to kiss me on my upturned cheek. I smelled coffee on his breath and saw crumbs of his breakfast on his shirt. His rough hands brushed my cheeks. He hated wearing gloves when working, always afraid of missing something. Time had created a road map of capillaries on his face that was new since the last time I had seen him. He also looked tired. How are you, my girl? George said. He was a trusted friend of my family. He knew my dad when they were younger, and my dad made him promise to watch over me at university. Although my father died years ago, George still looked out for me. I'm fine, I said. I'm so glad to see you again. It's been far too long. I put my arm through his and noticed he seemed a bit thinner than I remembered. How have you been? I asked, patting his shoulder. Oh, you know, all the aches and pains that come with age. But I find now that I'm retired, I have more work to do than ever, so I don't dwell on my problems. He retired three years ago, but was still invited to most of the digs in Great Britain as a consultant. We were lucky to have him. Mark picked up George's bag and we climbed into the rover. We dropped off his bag at Mrs. Dingleberry's and were on the hilltop by mid-morning. We have only been here two days, but I have part of a domicile excavated, I said. I'm expecting to find more very soon. I am really excited about being here. I immediately saw the dreaded look I remembered from his class when I would go to him and ask for an extension on my papers. I could never get them pared down to the page number requirement. You're always trying to make something bigger than it really is, Ain. Well, we'll see. I needed a small vacation for a day or two, then it's back to my report. It's worth the trip just to see you both on a job together, he said, smiling. Yes, it's been enjoyable so far, Mark said, looking at me with a smile. He winked and I blushed. We have a small crew, but all hard workers. We stopped at the edge of the excavated area where Matt and Tim were on their knees, with trowels and brushes in hand. Did it stay dry? I asked, changing the subject. Tim and Matt stood and shook George's hand. We had to use a bucket to get some of the water off the tarp before we moved it, but it's dry enough here, said Tim. Good. I see standing water in places, we could have been up to our knees if we hadn't covered it, I said. It's a good thing the tarps worked, said Mark. We probably don't have enough money to get a pump and generator if we flooded. We'd have to break camp. We may have to do that in a day or so anyway, if something more doesn't show up. I really don't think we'll have to worry about that anymore, Mark. I feel it in my bones, I argued. As nice as your bones are, they could be mistaken. Mark said. I gulped and had no answer to that truth. My stomach was back on its nervous royal as Mark and I walked George around the site. 
You must have trusted Ain's instincts somewhat, George said as he reached over, tucked me protectively under his arm, and gave me a hug while we walked. You called me, and I'm glad you did. I'm happy to be here for her, even if only for a few days. I'll help in any way I can, he smiled at me. You were a great help when my Sophie died. I'd have had a hard time of it if you hadn't come and helped me, George said. I'll look around. If I think it's warranted, I know where we can get some funding. My hope leapt at this bit of good news, but the pressure was on. All I had to do was find something in the next few days. Jana, I need you now more than ever. We were back at the tent, and Kendi showed us her drawings of bits of pottery and the bronze blade we found yesterday. Mark, I'm going to take a hike up the mountain a bit, I said. I couldn't wait any longer. I had to get to the trail to see if I could find the spot Jana had shown me last night. I located the area the sun was shining on yesterday while we walked around. I'll take my camera. I think it would be valuable to have some photos of the hilltop and the surrounding area from above. I pointed up. The sky looks as if it might rain again, and I want to go before it starts. From the way the clouds were forming, I figured I had several more hours before we had to pack it up and go back to the inn. I couldn't waste time. George agreed. There might be some ancient trails that show up in photos from above. I think that's a good idea. It might give us an idea how popular this hill was. Wait, I brought some new toys, walkie-talkies. Ain, why don't you take one? They're supposed to have a range of just over two kilometers. This will be a good test. I've not had to use them this far away before. When you get up there, call and tell us what you see. I grabbed my pack, put in my camera, the walkie-talkie, a bottle of water, and started to the mountain that flanked the hill. I skirted around the standing water and mud puddles on the hilltop and found the trailhead. I hopped over ruts formed by rivulets that ran down it last night. The mountain was picturesque. Greenery of all shades was starting to show in the spring warming. Grasses and small brush surrounded granite boulders that seemed to burst out of the mountainside. It wasn't a big mountain, but a respectable one in one's book of mountains, I thought. The trail led me in a zigzag fashion, the way animals would clamber up. I followed it without much difficulty, stepping carefully to avoid slipping in the mud. The larger exposed boulders partially hid my view of the hill below. About halfway up the trail, I stopped. The boulders opened up, and I saw the valley and the hill clearly. The hilltop was just large enough for a few dwellings and the accompanying animals. We had uncovered the first sign of habitation, and I visualized the rest of the fort. The depression that would have been the defensive wall followed the shape of the hill. I imagined people walking in the courtyard and animals in the stables. Looking out over the fields, I saw the bog where Mr. Treadwell let some of his highland cattle feed. There might have been a lake there at one time. On either side, now surrounded by stone walls that were centuries old, were other fields that looked as if rows of ancient cultivation were plowed into them. They were now pastures for cattle. As I turned back to the hilltop, I had a dizzying feeling of déjà vu. I had been on this spot last night. I looked through Jana's eyes with this view filling my vision. The spot now being excavated was where she saw her home in my awake dream. It was exactly where I decided to start digging. I knew she had come here to look over her home, happy with her life. There was nothing else I wanted more than to know her at that moment. She was happy 
and I would have loved to see her and talk to her at that point in her life. She had given me a gift. Jana allowed me to feel her joy. I turned to go on, but something looked strange from the corner of my eye. An unusual slab of stone. Actually, a large piece of slate was set into the mountain. It was out of place. This was a granite mountain and didn't have slate running through it, naturally. Earth partially covered the slab, and a mound of dirt directly under it must have come off in the rainstorm last night. On its left was a trickle waterfall from last night's rain. The soil was saturated. Suddenly I was depressed. My shoulders fell forward and sadness filled me. I almost fell. I put my hand against the slate as a brace and sat down to catch my breath. My peaceful feeling was gone. I couldn't understand the grief that had replaced it. For a moment, it seemed all my dreams had vanished, that there was nothing left to live for. I sat with my back against the slate, unable to see the hilltop below me. Dark shadows filled my eyes. I closed them to gather my strength and to stand again, and felt the slate grow warm against my back. It was as if it were sun-warmed, but the sun hadn't cut through the clouds for hours. I leaned forward and, still seated on the damp trail, scooted around to face the slate. It was dark, the color of the damp earth around it, and large, about one and a half meters across and over a meter high. I traced it with my fingertips and found the outside edges buried in dirt. It was a huge piece of slate that should not have been there. Someone must have placed it for a purpose. I had to know who placed it and why it was here. Starting to try to dig around the stone with my fingers, I remembered the walkie-talkie. I pressed the button and said, Hello, George. Would you please get Mark for me? Sure. I'm walking over to him now. Where are you? I stood up and waved my arms. I'm about halfway up the trail, and I've found something I'd like Mark to come see. Hi, Ane. Oh, there you are. I see you waving, said Mark. What is it? There's a slab of slate up here. It looks human-placed. Could you bring up some of our tools so we can take a look? Should I get a pry bar from the rover? Yes, I think we might need it, I said. George says he's coming, too. He suspects the view from up there is good. Tell him he won't be disappointed. I'll take pictures of the stone and the surrounding area until you get here. You should also bring a tarp. The ground up here is very damp, and we don't want to be sitting on it for long without protection, I said, and wiped some of the mud off the bottom of my pants. Bring Kendi along. We should get some grid sketches before we try to move it, too. Okay, we'll be there soon, Mark said. While I waited, I took pictures of the surrounding valley, the hilltop, and the stone slab. I put my hand next to it to give it a size comparison and pulled out my notebook to make a sketch. I wanted my own record. I knew this was important. As soon as they arrived, we spread out the tarp. Kendi sketched the hillside and the slab. We used GPS readings and measurements to get its exact placement. Finally, Kendi said she had enough information, and Mark and I started cutting the soil away from its edges. It sure looks like it was covered originally, either by humans or an early slide, said George. Last night's rain must have loosened the soil just enough. The topsoil here looks a bit unstable, so be careful. There's a shoulder of earth just above you that looks as if it could cause some trouble. I looked up where he was pointing and said, Then we need to get it excavated so it doesn't get covered up again. I don't want to lose it. I have a feeling this is very important.
Okay, Mark said. We have it as far as we can go by hand. Grab here while I use the pry bar to loosen it a bit on this side. The stone started to lean back and let light behind it for the first time in, I was betting, centuries. Stop, I yelled. There's an opening. It looks like a cave. Let me take some pictures before you move it further. Mark and George held the slab in place while I took pictures of the stone and the hole behind it. Kendi was furiously drawing. A minute later, we had it moved to the side, and the mouth of the cave was exposed. I stood trembling while Mark, using a flashlight, peered into it. It seems to go back a bit, but I can't see a lot through this small opening, Mark said. I got down on my stomach and crawled to the edge of the opening, so I had a direct view into the cave. This was dug by someone. It's short, about four meters. I can see the end of it and about a meter or a little more high and wide. I can see more slate lining its bottom and sides, and there's a box of some sort toward the back, I said excitedly. I'm going in. Wait, Ain, Mark and George said together. Do you think you should be going inside? This looks pretty waterlogged and could be dangerous, asked George. Mark continued. We don't have the best equipment to get anyone out if it collapses while someone's in there. I'm willing to take the risk, I said. We need a big find to help fund this project, Mark, and this could be it. This cave is man-made and is lined with slate. And that box, what could be in that box? We, I don't have time to wait. I'm the only one who will fit in that hole, and I'm going in now. On my tummy, camera in one hand and flashlight in the other, I inched forward like a worm. I tried to keep the flashlight focused on the box and took pictures as I slid myself further into the dark cave. I'm at the box. Oh my gosh, its sides are pieces of slate balanced against the sides of the cave and each other. There's a larger piece that is the lid. There isn't room in here to do anything more than lift the lid, so here goes. The stale air made me sweat. I lifted the lid slowly. The front and back sides of the box fell inward and banged against what was inside. I held my breath and hoped I hadn't broken anything. I laid the lid to the side and saw a faded design painted on it. I couldn't see what it was. I expected to be able to look it over more carefully outside, but now I longed to see what was behind the rest of the slate. I pulled the front side down and my flashlight highlighted a raven design. Three ravens intertwined. There, in front of me, was the bronze bowl I had seen in my dream last night. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I screamed. There's a bronze bowl in here, Mark. I've found another bronze bowl. Wow, said Mark. Take pictures, said Kendi. Be careful, said George. I snapped about 30 pictures, still unbelieving what I had discovered and said, I'm going to pick it up and bring it out. I laid my camera and flashlight down and wrapped my hands around the bowl. I glanced up and noticed a shadow at the back of the cave. Something was on the floor, just beyond the bowl. I was drawn to it, but first I wanted to get the bowl out. Okay, you'll have to help me. I have my hands full and can only use my elbows to move. I felt myself being tugged out by the hem of my pants. I inched backwards and my shirt bunched up around my waist. Finally out, I handed the bowl to Mark and stood, pulling my shirt down. 
There's something inside, said George. It looks like cremated remains. It could be a burial bowl. We can send it to Glasgow for testing. I gently liberated the bowl from Mark's sweaty hands. It was the size of a large grapefruit with three ravens engraved on the outside. As I held it, I felt the same heavy grief I had felt before. My shoulders slumped as I realized these must be Jonna's ashes. I'd found Jonna's remains. I didn't want to let it out of my sight, but I realized it should be studied. Okay, yes, send it to Glasgow. There probably are human remains in the bowl. Let's see if there are enough remains for its sex to be determined. Good idea, said Mark. It could be another chieftain. Could be, I said. Could be. But I knew he was wrong. Kendi, would you walk it down for me, I asked. I need to go back in and get the camera. George placed the bowl and its contents into a large plastic bag, keeping it upright. Please be extra careful, Kendi. The trail is very slippery, I said. She started down saying, I'll guard it as if it contained my mom's ashes. I watched her until she was halfway down and said, I have to go back in. I left the camera and the flashlight, and I saw something else in there. Okay, but be very careful and don't stay long, said Mark. We should get down and start the paperwork on the bowl to get it sent off. I kneeled down, crawled back into the hole, and inched forward until I reached the camera and flashlight. My hands stretched the last few inches and touched what had created the shadow. I had to make a choice. Do I carry out the top of the box or the unidentified lump that attracted me? I made the choice. I would come back to retrieve the slate. The lump was going first. With the lump of metal in one hand and camera in the other, the flashlight would be left behind. I could get it and the lid next time. I'm ready. You can start tugging. I was out to my waist when it happened. I heard a rumble and a watch out simultaneously. Everything went black, and I couldn't breathe. The whole mountain was on top of me. I tried to scream but choked. Someone whispered, Do not let go of the acorn. Do not let go of my acorn. I don't remember anything else until the clinic. When I woke up, a woman in a white coat hovered over me. Mark, George, and the rest of the crew pressed their faces against a window looking in. Machines buzzed and blinked, and tubes of liquid ran into my arms. What happened? Where am I? I asked. Hi, dearie, she said. Usually I hated to be called dearie, but I didn't mind this time. It is sure good to see you awake. My name is Susan. I'm a nurse. You're in a clinic. Your friends brought you in. We're waiting for an ambulance to get you to Fort William so you can have further tests. Do you remember what happened? I shook my head. Can you tell me your name? Oh, Ain, Ain McCray. Yes, Ain, good. Glad to have you back. She smiled a teacher's smile at my correct answer. Well, you were buried in an avalanche, and when they uncovered you, you weren't breathing. Someone had to breathe for you until you started on your own. Over her shoulder, Mark's dirt-streaked face broke out into a wide grin. I lifted two fingers and waved felt a sting in my arm, and then everything was gone again. Next time I woke up, George was in the room alone with me. We're at hospital in Fort William. You've been asleep for about 12 hours. What happened? I croaked. 
You were almost out of the cave when the ledge that I was worried about gave way. It triggered the whole cave to collapse. Mark and I scrambled out of the way, and when the dirt stopped falling, we got back on our knees and dug for our lives. Oh, well, for your life. It seemed to take an eternity, but I guess it was only a couple of minutes before we had you out. You weren't breathing, and Mark started CPR. After about two rounds, you started coughing and breathing. We got you to the village and helicoptered here as fast as we could. Fortunately, you only have torn muscles and deep bruising, but no broken bones. We were all very lucky. Mark, I whispered. He went to get a cup of coffee. Bowl? It's in Glasgow. I silently thanked God that it was okay. Hamra. George broke into a smile. Ah, the ever-present scientist. We recovered the camera and the pictures are perfect. We had to pry open your hand to retrieve the piece of metal you went back for. It seems to be two items that have become welded together over time. We'll decipher them later. Mark came into the room with two steaming cups of coffee. Sleeping Beauty is awake! He handed the cups to George, came over to my bedside and took my hand. God, I was scared. I don't ever want to have to do that again. No more caves for you. He leaned over and gently kissed me on my lips. Awakened by a prince, I said. And when do I get out of here? We can take you home to London tomorrow if we promise to give you proper time to recover, Mark said. No, not London, the inn. I don't want to leave the site. A stormy look covered George's face, but Mark said, Okay, okay, calm down. I'll call Mrs. Dingleberry and see if she's fine with it. After all, you'll be under her feet for a while. That way I can watch over you too. Tomorrow? I asked. Yes, said Mark. Good. I thought about the bronze bowl, its contents, and the whispered order to hold on to the acorn. I knew there was no way I could prove who was in the bowl to anyone else, but I knew I had found Jana. What other secrets did she have hidden? The mountain almost killed me, but I knew Jana had more for me to find. Please join me again for another chapter of The Fox by Arlene Radaski. Now enjoy the music of Steve McDonald's song, The Lordship of the Isles, from the Sums A Summerled album. His music can be found at www.etherean, E-T-H-E-R-E-A-N, who along with Steve have allowed me to use the music in my podcasts. Learn more about The Fox at www.radaski.com. I woke up on a Gaelic morn The kindred soul within reborn Voices call as the high wind blow Softly speak within me so Holding mystery within their call. 
Children of come, ye past remain. 